Oh, wait, you're listening. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. <coughs> you're listening, listening to Radio Lab. Radio Lab. From WNYC. Hey, this is Radio Lab. I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krolwich. Our topic today is goodness. Goodness, selflessness. So we've done the math. I the math. Okay, so you ready for this? Robert? I am ready. All right. So a while back, we we did this story that, for us at least, really stuck in our heads. It was a story that was uh, asking this really deep question, and the answer that we got to the answer didn't quite click. Right. I, I, I remember it that way. Yeah, and so just to sort of uh, set the table, the question was, why do people do good in the world? So we asked that question, looked at it from the perspective of genetics, computer science, all kinds of things. We ended up profiling these three extraordinarily heroically good people. Yes, they, they did, were heroes. They, they yeah, did exactly. remarkable things, each one. And we told their stories with that question in mind. Why do certain people do good in the world and others don't? Yeah. And so we're going to revisit that question today in the story that we told. Because I think we have something better and smarter to say about it, finally. Something very peculiar to say about it, as it turns out. Yeah, so we're going to play you the original first, and then we're going to come back and hopefully shed some new light on it. Yeah. So. Here we go. Again, this story just began with a simple question. That question led us. Walter Rutkowski. To a guy named Walter Rutkowski. And I'm the executive director and secretary of the Carnegie Hero Fund Commission. Cool. Well, thanks for doing this. Okay. Can you just give us a, a, a little background on the Hero Fund? What is the Carnegie Hero Fund? The Carnegie Hero Fund is a private operating foundation that was established by Andrew Carnegie in 1904. And what we do is recognize civilian heroism throughout the United States and Canada by giving an award called the Carnegie Medal. And accompanying the Carnegie Medal is a financial grant. How much? Uh, well, currently, the amount is $5,000. Wow. And how do you guys choose your heroes? We judge the heroic acts against a uh, list of requirements. So then you have to have some kind of definition of hero, which includes some and excludes others. Yes. Perfect. A basic definition, which is a civilian. One. Meaning no military. Who voluntarily. Two. Leaves a point of safety. Three. To risk his own life or her own life or to an extraordinary degree five to save or to attempt to save the life of another human six and how about seven why can you hear can you read that one more time okay i wasn't reading that just came from memory so the oh, okay change. like what is it that happens in a person's mind at that pivotal moment when they decide to voluntarily voluntarily leave a point of safety and risk their life to an extraordinary degree to save the life of another human that's what we wanted to know should we just jump in Okay. So the first one we have on our list is uh, Laura Schrake. Okay. That's file number 73546, and the award number is 8005. I am Laura Schrake. I'm from Mattoon, Illinois, and I currently live in Dubai, United Arab Emirates. Oh, wow. Laura spoke with our producer, Tim Howard. Okay, so we're going back a little bit here. Yeah, 15 years. Back in the uh, mid-90s. 1995. I was a 21-year-old college student. And I was driving through the country, and... I saw a woman getting mauled by a bull in a pasture. So she stopped to see what was going on. Jumped out and started yelling at her to see what I could do. The woman was on the ground and the bull was... 950-pound Jersey bull. Tossing her in the air and back on the ground. Wow. She was clearly struggling. And where were you? I was right on the other side of the fence, but the fence was electric. So here's the moment that we find fascinating. 
At this point, Laura can either go forward through thousands of volts of electricity toward an angry bull that will likely maul her too, or she can stay safe. I went ahead and just climbed through the fence. And I don't remember ever feeling the electricity. She says by the time she got through, crazily enough, a neighbor had shown up and threw her a piece of pipe. Maybe about two feet long. So she approached the woman. Who was still conscious. The whole time she's yelling at me, hit the bull in the face as hard as you can and don't stop. So Miss Shriek went up to the bull and uh, beat it repeatedly with this two foot length of tubing. I think it distracted the bull enough where she was able to get out from under him. And as soon as we were outside the fence, looking back into the pasture, the bull was literally right there at the fence. Kicked the ground a few times and snorted. <laughs> he, was not, he was not happy. To our question. When you were there at that fence mm-hmm. and you had the choice to either stay put or to go through it, What was going through your mind? Was there a calculation there? No, I can't really say that. I mean... You didn't weigh your options or anything like that? I did not, no. It was just, here's the problem, here's what I need to do, and something needed to happen. Huh. So there was no choice moment? Not that I recall. No. If nobody came to this woman's rescue, she would die. Unfortunately... This is the usual explanation, says Walter. No explanation. I, I couldn't stand there and not do anything. I, w- I was compelled to act. I didn't really take the time to think about what else could happen. Now, I can't say I ever really thought about my own life at that time. I mean, I okay, we just jumped ahead because we thought we'd try again. That's the voice of the next Carnegie hero that uh, Walter told us about. Yeah, William David Pennell. My name's uh, William Pennell. Uh, who is the 8,362nd person to receive the Carnegie Medal. Our producer, Lynn Levy, tracked him down. Bill, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Uh, William David Pennell was 37 years old at the time of his heroic act. Was it 1999? Yes. It was uh, early in the morning. It was like 3.19 a.m. in a uh, small town near Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Monongahela, Pennsylvania. We was in bed sleeping and uh, my wife heard a loud crash. I actually didn't hear it. And the dog, uh, my one dog was carrying on. So right away I, I run down there. Mr. Pennell went outside his house. There was a, a very bad automobile accident. A car crashed head-on into a utility pole. Flames was like rippling up the windshield out from under the hood. And he responded to the scene wearing only sweatpants. No shoes or shirt or nothing on it. Bare-chested and barefoot. So here we are. Bill's standing in front of this ball of fire. There are three teenagers inside that car, though he doesn't know it. He can either A, do nothing, or B, go in. Through the driver's door. And this big fella slumped out the door. So uh, I reached in and grabbed a hold of him. Around the chest, pulled him from the driver's seat out to the ground. In the meantime, the car was just like blazing. And my neighbor was there. She was hollering, there's more of them in there. So I run back to the vehicle. Found that the front seat passenger was trapped in the wreckage. I finally got him loose and pulled him out. Apparently, Mr. Pennell was aware that a third person was in the car, a third young man. Uh, Mr. Pennell entered the car a third time. By then, there was tires blowing the out. flames had grown to about three feet above the car's roof. The interior, like the headliner of the car and stuff, was dripping like plastic down on my back. Huh. Uh, 
I mean, I'm in there screaming, you know, somebody give me a hand in here. But nobody, nobody would help. And uh, I reached in and grabbed the hold of the kid that was in the back by the scruff of the neck and pulled him out. All right, so when you were coming out of your house and, and you're looking at that car, what was going through your head? Mm, well, just trying to try to help. I mean, I, I, I did what any normal person would do. I mean, you know, I just kept saying, this is somebody's kid, you know what I mean? At the time, my daughter was like 16. And I'm saying to myself, you know, if something, God forbid, would ever happen to her, that I would hope someone would be there to help. Did you ever talk to your neighbors and ask them why they didn't come in there? Uh, you, you know what, that's it's funny you brought that up because, no, I've never, never brought it up. Never brought it up. How come? Uh, I don't know. I guess uh, maybe I probably wouldn't like their answer. I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know why I've never asked them out. What do you think is the difference between you and, and those other people who just sort of stood by? Uh, I, I couldn't answer that. I couldn't answer that. So our bull girl, she didn't know. This guy didn't really know either. Somebody must be able to tell us something about what they were thinking at that moment that allowed them, that gave them the courage to do what they did. I can't give you a definite answer as to what propels people to do this, no. But we took one more shot with Walter, and uh, after we take a quick break, we're going to hear one more hero story from him. That's when we come back. This is Sam calling from Denver, Colorado. Radiolab is supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org. Chad, Robert, Radiolab. We're back now with Walter Bukowski, who's going to tell us the third and final of his hero stories. He told us that of all the cases he's heard, this is the one that puzzles him the most. It's the case of Wesley James Autry, a a construction worker from uh, New York, 50-year-old man, who did jump into the uh, track bed in a subway station to remove a uh, fellow, a young man, who had fallen onto the track. The gentleman was... Uh, six foot, 180 pounds. He was, he was inert, and yet Mr. Autry persisted despite the fact that a train was coming. There would come a point, at least, at least in my estimation, where you would have to say, I have to get out of here because I'm going to be killed. I'm, I'm not suicidal. But Mr. Autry didn't think that way. He and I part in this, in this manner. What he did was he lay atop the victim between the rails while the train passed over them in the farthest reaches of my imagination, I can see myself jumping onto a subway track to attempt the rescue. What I can't see myself doing is lying atop the victim while the train passes over me. Making this story even more nuts? When we finally met up with Wesley Autry on the platform where this incident happened, 135th and Broadway, he explained to us that his daughters had been with him. And uh, how old are your daughters? But at that time, time, my daughter was four and six, and this, this, them there. (laughs) Showed us picture. Oh my God! Super cute. Uh, The one behind me is Shuki, and this the baby Sashi. So when they're standing there, and this guy starts convulsing, and then eventually falls off the platform onto the tracks, right as a train is coming. His choice is pretty stark. In order to save this complete stranger, he's got to leave his daughters behind potentially without a dad. 
I'm looking at him shaking and going into another seizure. For some strange reason, a voice out of nowhere said, don't worry about your own, don't worry about your daughters. You can do this. So he jumps, runs to the guy. Is he conscious? No, no. Tries to grab the guy's hand. And each time I grab this hand, we'll slip apart. And when he slip, I look up, the train is getting closer. I grab his hand again, we'll slip apart. The train is closer. So 50 feet, elbows, 20 feet, 10 feet. And then it's right there. And all he can do is grab the guy, get him in a bear hug, and flatten his body against the guy as much as he can. The first train car just grazed my calves. Oh my God. Oh my the train God. car went right over and them. And when the train came to a stop, four to five cars passed over us. I looked them in the eye. I said, excuse me, you seem to have a seizure or something. I don't know you. You don't know me. So I just kept talking to him until he came through. And he was like, well, where are we? I'm like, we only need a train. He said, well, who are you? I said, I came down to save your life. So he kept asking me, are we dead? Are we in heaven? I gave him a slight pinch on his arm. He said, oh, just said, see, you, you're very much alive. Wow. Have you, did you ever ask yourself at this point, like, what am I doing here? I well, mean, he asked it, what am I doing here? Well, what about I you? My, I can hear the two ladies who had my daughter standing in, in between their legs. I can hear my daughter screaming. So when that train come to a stop, uh, I yelled up from underneath the train, excuse me, I'm the father, we're okay. I just want to let my daughters know that, I, that I'm okay because I know that they are worried about me. Everybody started clapping. Can I ask you a question? So it, the point at which you said you heard a voice yes. that said, I can do this. I can do this. What's, what, what is amazing to me is that you was, left your daughters right here and I, dive after a guy you don't well, know. He was a stranger, total stranger. But you know what? The mission wasn't come completed. I was chose for that. You felt chose? Like you, I you felt were chosen. I felt like I was the chosen one. Wow. But for a religious person, though, I would wonder, why me? Well, what you know what? Uh, Maybe 20 years ago, I was supposed to be at a certain point. And then he explained to us exactly why he had jumped. He was the one guy who could. He said right before his feet left the platform, this one specific moment from his life flashed to mind. This thing that happened, you know, uh, I had a gun pulled to my temple, but, you know, it was a misfire. So, you know. A gun was put to your head and missed. So you were almost dead for a second I was almost dead. You know, oh, so you think you might have been spared for a purpose? I was spared for a reason. After that moment, he says, when the gun went click and he didn't die, he always wondered, why had God spared him that moment? Until he was on the platform and he saw the guy fall off. He says then he knew, this is why. I, I can do this. It was just, I can do this. I can do this. That voice, when that voice said that you're going to be okay, I knew everything was going to work out. You know what I think at the end of the day? What's that? I don't think that there's an answer to the question we asked. I don't think... The hero question? Why were you a hero? I don't think that any three of these heroes... I mean, the last one had the longest explanation. He had been selected for some purpose, but does he know why he was well, chosen? Not a clue. Uh, see, I, uh, guy number three gives me something. What does he give you? Okay, so the first two, right? Yeah. They have no idea. None. So there's just something in them that made them act. But guy number three... He's talking about circumstances. Mm. Like the world prepared him for that moment. Mm. Serendipity. So it makes me think, well, what if uh, circumstances are just right? 
Maybe any of us could do that. I get, I get a mailman. He, he used to say to me all the time, he says, how did you manage to do that up there? How did you manage to pull them kids out? I don't know if I could have done that. I said, well, you know what? Don't say you wouldn't do this or you wouldn't do that until you're put in that situation. In fact, when we asked Walter, how many uh, nominations do you get a year? Are they hard to find? No, they are not hard at all to find. Uh, we are fortunate to be living in a society, regardless of what you hear elsewhere, we are fortunate to be living in a society where people do look out for others, even strangers. He told us they've even had to up their guidelines to make it harder to win. Simply because of the vast number of heroic deeds that uh, happen in day-to-day life. Um, I, gotta, I gotta say that um, we went with this feel-good thought about about all the people who are doing good, because I honestly don't think we knew what to say to end that story. Well, it's nice to know that there's a lot more good people than we thought. But we went, to, we were trying to figure out why people, why people who do that do that, and why we're different, or they're different than us, we and, really, at the, and we didn't really get there. Uh, but then, yeah. this guy walks in. <laughs> you should say, uh, just for these purposes, who you are, once again. Um Robert Sapolsky. I'm a professor of neuroscience at Stanford University. Robert has been on our program many, many times talking about any number of things, and he has just come out with a book called Behave, trying to explain why we do everything we do. It goes into the brain, into history, into culture, everything. And we figured, well, maybe he would have something to say about our our little puzzle. <laughs> yep. All right, well, let me just, let's just ask you, you've heard all three of these things. What does this, what do these three tales make you think? I think what we see with all three is how highfalutin moral reasoning plays like zero role in what went on there. Moral reasoning doesn't do anything. And, you see and you know, the first thing that Robert Spolsky told us, which maybe wasn't that surprising, is that when we were asking people what were they thinking, that was sort of the wrong question. And everybody, as you saw, always gives the same answer, which is, I wasn't thinking, I was feeling about what if this were my 16-year-old daughter or I hearing a voice or with the bull woman saying, I wasn't thinking. Like, before I knew it, I had jumped in. People the evidence suggests, Sapolsky says, that in situations like this, people just don't reason their way to a decision. That's not how it works. Correct. People don't think their way to a moral decision. And in fact, if you give people enough time to really think their way in a circumstance like that, most people think their way to concluding this isn't my problem or <laughs> somebody else will take care of it or here's why it's their fault. So then we ask them, okay, if it's not thinking or moral reasoning, then maybe what these heroes are doing is they're, they're feeling, they're, they're, they're empathizing more than the rest of us. And that's why they do what they do. Ironically, probably not. Um, probably not? Yeah. Okay, so empathy. You're, you're feeling somebody else's pain. Pain, whether it's pain, your toes on fire, or pain, you're feeling the pain of somebody else. Pain is painful. And if it's painful enough and acute and burning enough, what that translates into is, I can't take it, this is too upsetting, and you need to run away. At some point... If you're mostly focused on, my God, what were this to be? What would this feel like if this were happening to me? That's the predictor of people who don't necessarily, don't very readily make that leap from feeling empathy to actually acting compassionately. No, that's not what I expected you to say. I thought you were going to take it the other way. So you're saying when when it's hot, when it's me, 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 your pain is my pain, those people are less likely to step forward? Yeah. 
they're less likely to actually go and do the compassionate thing. Spolsky told us that there have actually been studies that have found this, that when someone actually empathizes, physically feels another person's pain, they're more likely to turn away from it rather than step forward and try and alleviate that person's suffering. You put somebody in a circumstance and, for example, how many shocks are they willing to get to intervene to help somebody in some simulation game, for example. And you look at, is this the person whose heart rate soars when they see somebody else in this tough situation? Or is this the kind where it remains fairly steady? the latter is more likely to act compassionately. That's so interesting. Okay, so what we're barreling towards here is it's not so much about moral reasoning, it's not so much about vast empathy, but it's about a type of empathy that allows you to remain detached enough to actually act. Huh. So emotional distance will create the humane or charitable act. Exactly. You need a certain amount of detachment. That's surprisingly where it comes in, and that runs counter to so many of our instincts about what empathy should be about. And what I think we see here is probably the most reliable realm of people going and doing the heroic thing, which is when it's implicit, when it's automatic, when it's not you sitting there reasoning through, well, how many copies of my genes am I going to pass on if I do this or among my close relatives, and where it's not empathy. Oh, am I feeling for this person or as this person or with this person or above this? And instead, before I knew it, I had jumped in the river to save this child. And I think that's where you see some of the most interesting, reliably sort of heroic stuff when it's implicit, when it's automatic. And, and do you know how a person can get that kind of compassion made implicit? Is it, uh, is it something you're born with or something cultural that your parents uh, put in you? Or, or do you have any idea? The thing is, we don't know a ton about the neurobiology of how a moral good goes from being a frontal task to an implicit task, but we know a ton about how that works in a much more mundane area, which is like you learn how to do something. Like you're a pianist and you're learning some new tough piece of music and there's this really tough trill and every time you're playing it, as you approach the trill, you're thinking, here it comes, remember, tuck your elbow in and lead with your thumb and do this. It is what would be called a declarative task, declarative explicit knowledge. And that's completely about this part of the brain, the hippocampus, talking to the frontal cortex, and it's sitting there saying, here it comes, and remember how you do it, and remember how you do it wrong, what happened last time, and how great it felt when you tucked your elbow in, so remember, do that. And then, suddenly, there's the day where you're playing the piece, and you realize you're four measures past the trill, and you played it just fine. That's the first day you played it without having to think about it. And jargon in the learning field is it has stopped being an explicit declarative task, and it's become an implicit procedural task. That's the first time your hands know it better than your head does. I mean, take somebody who's like beating the pants off of you at tennis and they've just done like some amazing backhand and crushed you. And what you need to do strategically now is force them to take that procedural knowledge and make it declarative again. Stop at that point and give them this like 
obsequious smile. I say, oh my God, you're an amazing tennis player. That was an amazing shot. How did you do that? Do you put your hand over on this side of the racket or that side? And what, what about your butt? Are you scrunching your butt on the left side or the right? And you force them. It's like you make somebody like think very explicitly and procedurally how you go down flights of stairs and you're going to fall down the stairs because none of us have done stairs procedurally since we were about two and a half years old. So if a bunch of professors had swarmed over our threesome, or at least the first two of our threesome, they might have been ruined for the next experience. But if you let them do their <laughs> natural thing, then they would rescue again, maybe, if they could just keep it implicit. Do you think that... Uh, if it's implicit. Do you think that uh, that there's it's a clean it's a clean analogy? I mean, do you think that, that it, the people for whom it is automatic, it's automatic because they've practiced it in some way? In the way that, like, they practice? In some way... Yeah. For example, lots of studies were done as to which people in either Germany or Nazi-occupied uh, Europe shielded Jews, gave them shelter, put their own lives at risk. And it wasn't predicted by level of education. There goes all that moral reasoning stuff. And it wasn't even predict uh, predicted by things like religiosity. It was people who had simply been raised, you do the right thing. It was automatic. It was implicit for them. They didn't have to sit there and think about or feel about. It was automatic. Is that thank you, mommy and daddy? Is that what that is? Thank you, mommy, daddy, rabbi, priest. Uh, 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 what is that? I think it's mostly that. But of course, it's messier than playing a trill on a piano or doing a tennis right. backhand. I mean, people first learned about it, and you literally can see the transition from which part of the brain is handling the task. So the initial view was, okay, that's how you do trills on the piano. But then you see something even more amazing, which is more complex stuff happens. My, my father, in his last years, had a pretty severe dementia. Um, he was a professor. He was an architectural historian. And he reached a point where he could not identify the names of all of his kids consistently. He didn't know where he was, what decade, etc. But prompt him and he could give you this totally lucid opinionated cranky entertaining 10-minute lecture on the history of flying buttresses and wow. <laughs> then come back two minutes later and prompt him again and he'd give you the exact same one again for him that was as implicit as you know the tennis player doing the backhand or playing the trills on the piano and I fully expect when I'm demented someday, I'll give this exact lecture that I just gave and I can do it over and over and over until the students complain. So all sorts of stuff more complex than a tennis backhand becomes implicit. I think what we're seeing with the woman with the bowl there in the electric fence is some incredibly high level abstract stuff becomes implicit as well. You don't like fling your elbow way out to the right when you do the trill. And you don't stand by and watch somebody being like done in. You just, before you know it, you don't reason, you don't feel, you just do it. Before I knew it, I had run in there. No, is this one of your lectures? Do you talk about this very thing a lot? <laughs> um, oh, in other words, when sometimes. we come and visit you in 13 years, will you be greeting us with this very lecture? <laughs> Precisely. <gasps> Empathy. Empathy is an interesting topic. Sit down. This will be on the final. <laughs> Big, big thanks to Robert Sapolsky, whose new book uh, is called Behave. This piece was produced by Amanda Aronchek. 
And um, if you liked this story and it's kind of got you thinking, go and listen to our good show, which is at radiolab.org. There's a lot of stuff in the good show. A lot good of stuff. stuff. There's a lot of good in the good, good show. Good stuff in the good show. Yes. I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krowich. Thanks for listening. This is Graham Elwood from Memphis. Radio Lab was created by Jad Abumrad and is produced by Soren Wheeler. Dylan Keefe is our director of sound design. Maria Matissar Padilla is our managing director. Our staff includes Simon Adler, Becca Bresler, Rachel Cusick, David Gebel, Bethel Hobti, Tracy Hunt, Matt Kielty, Robert Krolwich, Annie McEwen, Latif Nasser, Melissa O'Donnell, Ariane Wack, Pat Walters, and Molly Webster. With help from Amanda Oranchik, Shima Olai, David Fox, Nigar Fatali, Phoebe Wang, and Katie Ferguson. Our fact checker is Michelle Harris. 